Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squadron, the podcast devoted to creating, optimizing, and maintaining a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm a sergeant for a Sheriff's Department in Southern California. And if this is your first time listening to the show, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you're curious about the format, uh, here's what we do. We talk to experts in a variety of fields, and I'm looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. I want to make uh, myself as happy and healthy as possible, and I want to tackle this challenging career with energy enthusiasm and focus i want to get better the whole point of the show is about getting better and and making myself better and then i share what i'm learning from my guests with you i try to implement some of the things that we talk about and i report back now before we get to the interview i want to remind you you can get more information on this episode including show notes and links by going to the squadroom.net and of course you can also subscribe on itunes and stitcher and of course follow me on instagram and twitter at the squadroom if you're on the socials now, also, uh, this week, we have an exciting addition. We have a, a, a new Facebook group. It's a closed Facebook group for listeners of the Squad Room, people who want to do just what I just talked about, get better. And I've been trying to work on this for a long time, and we finally got it off the ground. And it's quite simple, really. Uh, this here is me with a microphone staring at a computer screen talking. And I'm lucky that I get to talk to some amazing people on the show, uh, including today's guest, which we'll get to in a second. But I have found in my conversations, my emails, my discussions with many of you that you have many things to offer and that we can all have something to learn from each other. Uh, and in fact, I was having that conversation uh, with my kids this morning about we all have something to add to the conversation. So I wanted to create a Facebook group that uh, we could go to for encouragement, for questions. Uh, we get a lot of guys on the show or a lot of guys who listen to the show who are just getting into law enforcement and uh, I remember that that uh, uncertainty at the beginning of the career and um, there's a lot of guys here that can give a lot of good advice. So go to our Facebook page and join the Facebook group and uh, start engaging in the con- conversation. I want to make this as much of a two-way conversation as I possibly can. All right, so go to Facebook, search The Squad Room and you'll find our podcast page and uh, or you go to the show notes here or our website, thesquadroom.net and you can link to it from there. Our guest today is uh, Bernard Malekian. Uh, Bernard is, I'm going to call him, um, Sir. I usually call him Sir, to be honest, and we can touch on that during the show. Um, he is the first person I've had on the show uh, from my own department, and that's intentional, uh, or it has been in the past. If you've listened to the show from the beginning, you'll notice I have never once said the department that I work for, and it's not to be coy, it's just to make sure that I stay within policy with my uh, social media policy in my department, and I highly recommend you all read your own if you uh, don't know, because you probably have a social media policy. So if I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this big thing where I put my voice out there and I'm in uh, 90-some countries and lots of downloads, um, I want to make sure that my voice is separate from that of my department. So I don't talk about it much, but this was a guy that I wanted to have on from the minute I started the show who um, came and uh, came in as undersheriff for us um, close to five years ago now. And uh, I've always been um, impressed with him. And I'm not just saying that because he's my boss, uh, because I had the choice not to have him on the show either. So I don't, nec- I don't need to have him on the show. But I've always enjoyed talking with him. I think that he provides some great perspective. He's going to give his resume. And if you don't listen to anything else, but just listen to the first five minutes where he talks, where he gives his resume. Because I think that's where um, that, that perspective that he brings from a line-level officer all the way up to uh, head of the cops de- uh, department at the Department of Justice, the cops office. So he's had some amazing experiences 
And uh, he acts very much in a mentorship role for uh, many of us who want to understand and learn from that and learn from his experiences. One of the things we talk about force multipliers at the beginning here, one of the things that you can do uh, to, 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 to have a force multiplier is to learn from other people, of course, right? And that includes the people who've come before you. And if you can learn from their mistakes, it saves you sometimes the headache of not making that mistake yourself. Sometimes we have to make our own mistakes and we have to learn from them that way. But I think one of the value, valuable lessons about talking to guys with that kind of experience with 45 plus years in law enforcement is they've been there, they've done that, and they know how to navigate some of those waters. And we talk about that on the show. So uh, today's guest, uh, Bernard Malekian, uh, Under Sheriff of the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department. Barney Malekian, welcome to the show. Welcome to the squad room. Uh, glad to be here, Garrett. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to be honest with my listeners. Uh, this is the first time I've had someone on the show who I work with, but not only work with, but work for. So uh, people are going to get a chuckle when I revert to sir quite often during our discussion today. Well, we won't, we'll try not to, we'll try not to confuse everyone, but I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, very appreciative of you, including me on this show. So thank you. So for the people who uh, don't know who you are, can you give us your resume real briefly? Well, or, or not take as much time as you want, <laughs> but just to get a sense of what you've done uh, in law enforcement to this point. Well, I, I have been in this business for a very long time. I'm, uh, next year will be my 45th year, and I, I feel privileged to still be healthy enough to, to, to be doing it. Uh, I spent uh, 23 years with the Santa Monica Police Department. I was um, work patrol and SWAT. I was the first dog handler in California uh, for really? a long time, back in the 70s. I was actually a deputy sheriff with the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office for a year. Um, came up and went back, which is a long case study in its own right about how not to recruit people. Um, <laughs> and um, then I was um, uh, selected to be the police chief for the city of Pasadena, uh, which was a fascinating experience. Um, uh, Pasadena is um, really ground zero for issues of policing and race. And, uh, you know, Pasadena's image is that it's uh, one square miles of mansions and it has a parade once a year. But the reality is that it's the fourth biggest city in L.A. County. It's a majority minority city. Uh, I was the first non-African-American chief in probably 12, 13 years, and it was a very big deal. Um, and then uh, over the course of that 13 years that I was there, I was the acting fire chief for six months, and I was the acting city manager for almost a year. Um, and uh, at the end of that, I had the privilege of being appointed by um, – uh, Attorney General Eric Holder and President Obama uh, to be the director of the COPS office, the Community-Oriented Policing Services office in the Justice Department. And I did that for nearly four years and uh, came back to California and moved to Santa Barbara and ran a consulting business, which still is actually in business, although it doesn't do very much right now. But for about two plus years, I was uh, liaison to the mayor of the city of Seattle on policing issues. Uh, I did um, audits for the International City Management Association. Uh, I was part of the audit team for the L.A. Sheriff's uh, contract with the MTA. Uh, and uh, in uh, 2014, uh, Sheriff Bill Brown and, uh, asked me if I would... Um, come and be the undersheriff uh, for the county, uh, which I have been doing for the last two and a half years. And it's my truly uh, my privilege to be um, uh, to be still active in this business. So that's a 
Very condensed version. That's a condensed <laughs> version. So that's why I wanted to talk to you because I, I want to get that perspective. We have a lot of people on the show who are um, – we've, we've had other chiefs on and we've had uh, people in specialty uh, roles, but I always like getting the long view for those of us. The whole point of the show is how do you go through a career, and ideally a 45-plus year career, with uh, – your, your sanity intact. And to give people some perspective, too, before I ever met well, you. Well, that may be debatable whether my sanity <laughs> well, <laughs> is intact, but go ahead. Um, you know, it's funny, I, and this I'll tell you this story just because uh, we're in the middle of this uh, this interview here, but uh, I had heard your name during my grad school program when I was doing a lot of research on police-related activities, and there you wrote a lot of papers that I had referenced in my own research papers in my and in my presentations. So when I saw the memo that you were coming, that announcing you know, your arrival here, I thought there can't be that many Bernard Malekis in the world. But what are the chances that we're getting them? So um, you've done a lot of uh, work advancing the cops' office forward and just officer safety, officer wellness. That's a big uh, push for you. Um, but you've held every position in law enforcement at this point. I mean, I can't think of anything you haven't done. Uh, you know, from line level all the way up. And so after 40 years, 45 plus years, what gets you excited about still coming back to work? You know, one of the things that I think everyone from the newest recruit to somebody that's been in this business for 40 plus years, very often lose sight of is in this business, we get to make a difference in the lives of the people we come in contact with. And that sounds very dramatic and very 30,000 feet. But in reality, we lose sight of that. One of the best descriptions that I've heard about one of the challenges of our business is was from Michael Neela, who oversees the Blue Courage program. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we do a great job in law enforcement of teaching our people what to do, but a very poor job of teaching them why they're doing it. Uh, And I I think that's true. I think... um, as I said, I, I did consulting for a couple of years, and consulting was very profitable, and it was very interesting. I got to fly all over the country and do things. But I didn't have any skin in the game. I didn't have um, – I, I wasn't in the arena. And one of the things I discovered was that I loved being in the arena. And I love being in the arena because I do get to make a difference in the lives of not just the public, uh, but I like to think that I make a difference in the lives of the people who work here. Uh, and – um, that, that, and I'm taking a very long way to give you a very short answer, no, which is, which is in this business, we get to make a difference if we choose to, if we recognize it for what it is and we choose to, uh, and that's what gets me going. You mentioned that you said in the arena, we come back to that Teddy Roosevelt quote quite a bit on this show about being in the arena. Um, it's my, one of my favorite quotes. Absolutely. Which is why I use it. Yes. We made a t-shirt <laughs> about it, uh, some time ago even, um, but being in the arena can be exhausting too. What are those two, do you have two or three, maybe more habits, practices, routines, the things that you do or that you've developed over your career to kind of keep you grounded? Yes. Um, and, and I, and I would be a liar if I said that I had been grounded for 45 years, because <laughs> that's certainly not the case. Um, I do think there's a couple of things though that I, I really recommend to people. One is, um, you really should have a program of physical fitness uh, you and, and and some way to sort of vent off this off this business um and secondly um uh, 
you need to have some interests away from here. And that includes, I'm not saying get a big hobby or whatever it is that you do, but something that's not related to police work that puts you in contact with people who are not in law enforcement so that you can remind yourself that the world is bigger than, than what we, what, what we see. Um, my first, my first field training officer told me that I was going to see uh, good people at their worst and bad people at their best. And, and that, that turned out to be very true. Uh, but it, uh, it can, um, uh, it can be very wearing. Uh, a quote that I uh, was struck by early in my career, there was a book that came out in the 60s. I hope people have heard of it still, but uh, uh, called The New Centurions. Joseph Wamba wrote it. And uh, in it, he said that the greatest danger to a law enforcement officer was not a criminal's bullet or a speeding car. He said it was the daily drop of corrosion on the human soul. Um, and And that... Being aware of that and finding antidotes to that, finding whatever your psychological WD-40 is to, to keep that corrosion from growing, I think, is critical. For me, it, for a long time, it was going to school. Um, I, went to sc- I did school on the installment plan. I, it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's degree. It took me uh, six years to get my master's degree. It took me eight years to get my doctorate. And... And with each passing year, I was in in class with people who were younger than I was, uh, and and it actually got to a point where the teachers were younger than I was, and and that was fine too, because it was it was a view of the world that I would not have had in in my in my business. Um, so physical fitness and outside interests, I think. Did you ever find yourself at any point in your career completely vested or? Only identifying yourself as a cop, as a law enforcement officer, were you able to, to absolutely? Save that off? Yeah. No, no, no. I was um, when I was younger. As, uh, as I mentioned, I was part of the. I said I was the first dog handler in Southern California. I was actually there were three of us uh, when George Tilsch uh, created the canine program in Santa Monica. Um, and as a result of that, I was I was uh, dispatched all over Southern California to search for criminals. Once people figured out we had these dogs, um, and I was in um, uh, 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 more than one deadly force incident, and um, uh, I was fully immersed in in uh, in being a in being a warrior and the whole warrior mentality. Uh, you know, it probably probably didn't do wonders for my home life certainly didn't do wonders for my psychological health um and i was i was fortunate uh to have sort of people i was actually saved by saved is a good word uh, saved by um, a police chief who had told me uh that when my dog who was nationally known because of a couple of arrests that we made um told me that i could have a second dog when the first dog had to retire and when uh, when that dog retired, I went to the chief and I said, okay, I'm ready for my second dog. And he said, in a year. And I said, what do you mean, in a year? And he said, you can have a dog in a year. And I said, well, you told me I could have a dog. And I said, you, he said, you can, but I want you to do something else for a year. And um, I was furious with him. But that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I discovered that I, re- I was reminded that there were other things do you think that was intentional on his part? That was the goal? I know it was intentional on his part because years later I talked to him about it. And uh, uh, he said, he said, I knew that, um, he said, I, I knew that you needed to do other things 
uh, to, to remind that there were other aspects of this business and uh, other things that you uh, would have an opportunity to contribute to. What are the things that you think any leader in a department from a sergeant or even if it's a corporal or senior deputy on up can do to help their people keep some, some distance between between them? I, I was reading um, that if you, Kevin Gilmartin's book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. He's got a story in there about one of, his office, one of the officers who was shot and killed on duty but had on his fridge a, sign, a saying that said it's a career, not a crusade. And to keep that distance from it somewhat. What, what can a leader do just to help his people as in different ranks? Or is there a difference? Well, I think the first thing, and, and, and keep in mind the closer to, the, you know, I, I only half jokingly say I don't do real work anymore. Uh, because in my opinion, the real work of this business is done by the people who, men and women who drive radio cars, who prowl the floors of jails, uh, you know, 24 hours a day, who answer the phone and dispatch units. That's the real work of this organization. Um, the farther you are from that in terms of rank, uh, it's important to remember that, that the people that you make a difference to most often are the people who report to you. You make a difference for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But the first thing a leader needs to do is to achieve that balance for themselves. I mean, one of my one of the most influential books that I read was Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and one of the things I liked about it was that it um, uh, it emphasized on the need to change yourself before you could change others. So the the leader has to have that balance in their own life and that recognition in their own life before uh, they can impart it to others, uh, but they need to be aware of it. How do you do that? I, mean, I was going to say you strike me as someone who's rather who's quite self-aware, uh, but with this job as an identity and all that, how, how do you maintain that self-awareness, especially as you go up through ranks and you have uh, you may have you may have less and less inputs uh, from from the sides and from on top? Does that make sense? I'm not sure I follow. Well, <clears throat> just self-awareness is obviously a very important. I think it's a critical thing as for, for anybody, but especially I think in law enforcement, knowledge of not only what you know, but what you don't know, but also um, the kind of person you are and the kind of person you want to be versus, you know, in that, in that gap between the two. As you, I, this is a hypothesis here, but as you move up in an organization, there are less people willing to tell you what you may need to hear that you don't want to hear. So how do you maintain that self-awareness yourself? You actually touched on on two pieces of that, even though it was a one-part question. Go ahead. The first thing that happens to leaders as they go up is the list of things they don't want to hear gets longer. <laughs> and, and, and if you're not careful, you can fall into that because you're absolutely right. The, the higher up in an organization you go, the fewer people are going to be willing to tell you the truth. But what plays into that is your own unwillingness to hear any truth except what you want to hear uh, and if this show was longer i could tell you i mean I, one of my favorite quotes was on the restaurant or, or on a blackboard in a restaurant I, I was in once and it said good judgment comes from wisdom and wisdom comes from bad judgment and and most times especially when you get to a place where you're sort of detached from the street and if you're not careful, policing and law enforcement then becomes an intellectual exercise. It becomes it becomes something that happens abstractly, um, and it's easy then to to sort of get into this. Well, you're comfortable and you don't really want to hear anything that 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 
changes that and you have to you have to fight that continually you have to force yourself and i think it's important quite honestly the higher rank you go, i think it's important to get out of your office to get out of whatever it is you do and and at least go touch bases with the people that are doing the real work of the organization what can you do what can a sergeant do or on up anybody do to be open to that and to project the idea that you're open to those things you don't want to hear because it's one thing to walk around and say, I'm going to go visit the troops. But again, if they don't want to tell you the bad news. <laughs> I used to tell people, in fact, I think I said it when I came here. I don't know if you were, you were in the room or not. But when I, I said, you know, if I ask you, how are things going? I said, I've just opened a door for you to tell me something. And you have a choice. You can tell me your perception of how things are going. Or you can say, you can utter one of my least favorite words, which is fine. Everything's fine. Fine, I've discovered, is code for please go away and leave me alone because, <laughs> because you've, you've exceeded my comfort zone. I think, I think when you talk about walking around, there's I, – I don't, I don't even know how to teach it. Um, I, I think you, you go out to – first of all, you go to where people are. Not where you, you don't have them come to you. You go to where they are, where their workplace, their office. And secondly, you don't assume that your rank or your tenure somehow makes you more qualified than they are in that space at that time. And I'm, 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 I'm over. I'm not saying this as well as I would like. I understand. Um, but you simply have to. I my my. I was going to say my approach. But that implies that there's something ingenuine about it, and it's not, is to ask people about the work that they do. What about this? What about that? I recently rode with the rural crimes deputy for several hours. I don't know very much about rural crimes, and why would I go and pretend that I do? I didn't go and talk to him too much anyway about about budgets or about, um, you know, about the strategic direction of policing. I asked him about how people processed avocados and when they stole them or the fact that uh, what, how, why are cattle branded in a certain way or how are these things processed. It was interesting to me. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a game. It, it was, it's interesting to me because there's so much about this business that people do and we lose, we lose sight of the fact that it's just like that chief who said, I want you to do more than be a dog handler. There's, there's more... There's more. There's so many aspects of this business that are just fascinating to me. That's one thing that's always struck me is how there's so much room in this career for all of us, right? There's there's everything from the kind of stereotypical SWAT cop, uh, military operator guy, all the way to the school resource deputy or the coach, the guy, you know, those. Mm-hmm. The, it's such a huge, broad spectrum and the kind of people that it brings into law enforcement as a result. Um, I want to ask you about leadership. Uh, do you have a personal definition of leadership? Yeah. I do. Um, I used to have a I used to have a uh, a desk with a glass top on it, and underneath that glass, I had a uh, I had two cards actually, and I, I I looked at them both every day. Uh, one of them one of them said, and I don't remember who who the quote was attributed to. It said, "Leadership is an opportunity to serve. It is not a trumpet call to self importance." Um, and I I feel very strongly about that. Um, uh, the best leaders that I have ever worked for uh, 
were people who understood that they were serving the people that followed them and I, I that, that, that reported to them. And I think that's important. Um, and the other thing is to have a sense of vision and to have a sense of purpose. Uh, the other card that was under my desk uh, showed, a, uh, showed a man uh, sort of crouched over and he had his hands positioned in a certain way, but there was nothing in his hands. But the shadow that was on the ground, he had a saxophone. There was a sax, the outline of a saxophone. And the quote on the card was, some things must be believed to be seen. And, and those two things, I, I hope, epitomize my style uh, and what I believe leadership is all about, vision and a sense of service. So how do you share that vision? Well, I, first of all, you have to. You have, somebody, and I believe it was me, uh, once said, um, actually got in trouble for this, um, <laughs> and said that somebody asked me, they were describing a certain public official, and they said, um, uh, What do you, so and so has been described as a visionary. How do you respond to that? And I said, Well, I think it's important to remember that there's a fine line between vision and hallucination. And the, the second sentence was, that line is defined by the people who work for you. Um, so I think you communicate what your vision is. You communicate it. If I was, if I was drawing a coat of arms for a leader's office, um, one, of the, one of the elements in that, in that coat of arms would be a compass to say, we are going in this direction. We are, we are we're going down this road. Um, and the sec- a second uh, sort of element in that would be a shield. Uh, to keep sort of the daily trials and tribulations off the people who are trying to implement that Im- implement that vision, but you have to communicate that vision and you have to be open to and you have to be open to input about concerns about it, and you have to avoid micromanaging the process by which that vision is is attained you uh we had a I think, I think you know him, uh, Steve Pitts, chief of Reno PD, or former chief of Reno PD. He was on the show um, some episodes ago. And one of my favorite quotes from him is that you can't have high expectations without high support. And mm-hmm. when I think of that in the questions that I wanted to ask you, it came back to uh, stories I've heard you talk about with mentorship and having mentors. Do you have uh, a story or a particular, uh, some some of the mentors that, who were some of the mentors through your career? Well, one thing I'd like to emphasize for your for the listeners um, is that I really don't believe in formal mentoring programs. I, I really I think it's every leader's obligation to mentor one or two or three people, uh, but I, I I think we fall into the I really don't have a lot of support for this idea of creating a formal mentoring program. Uh, there were certainly certainly um, uh, two people who, who probably more than that, but. Uh, certainly two people who shaped uh, my career. One was a captain that I reported to when I was a sergeant. Um, uh, he was um, one of the wisest people that I've, I've I've ever known. And he asked me the single, when I was younger and, and when I was on the POA board and, and all that, I was a table pounder and, a, and I was always, uh, I was always fighting injustice and I found injustice everywhere. So I was in a continual state of war with the, with the world. And uh, I was going to go. I was going to go tell the chief off about something, and uh, uh, in my role as a union leader, and and uh, uh, Mike uh, McClary was his name. And Mike McClary asked me. He said, "You know, you should ask yourself a, a question." And I said, "What's that?" And he goes, "Which is more important to you, being right or being effective?" 
And it's arguably the most important question that anybody asked me in my entire career because I realized at that moment how much energy that I had spent being right. I was spending a lot of energy being right. Nobody was paying any attention to me, and I wasn't accomplishing anything, but I was right. Mm-hmm. And I really did – that really that, – that moment marked, marked the beginning. The second, the, the second sort of mentor that I had was a police chief who absolutely did not like me. Um, and it was okay with me because I didn't like him either. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, remember, um, uh, I remember that he asked for um, uh, applicants for adjutant. Uh, and uh, he made the mistake of saying that he was going to interview everyone that applied. So I applied. I applied solely for the purpose of annoying him. And it, and sure enough, when it was my time for the interview and I walked into his office, the first thing that he said to me was, why are you here? I don't like you. And I said, well, I don't like you either, but you said you were going to talk to me. And he ended up picking me for the job. And this is another one of those long things and later on I asked him a couple years later I asked him why did you pick me you didn't like me and we still don't agree philosophically on a lot of things and he said because I knew you would tell me the truth Um, and the lesson out of that I got is is one I really didn't care whether he made me his adjutant or not in fact I was shocked that he did but but I learned that speaking truth to power was a critical skill set and secondly I also learned that whatever his personal opinion of me, his commitment to the welfare of the organization was bigger than his than than his personal opinion of Barney Malekian. Uh And I learned a lot from that, from those two guys. I imagine you eventually came to some sort of, uh, I don't know, friendship might be too much, but no, respect uh, at least. I, I don't know whether it was friendship, but I will tell you that when I, when I left to go to, he had retired by then, but when I left to go to Pasadena, mm-hmm. uh, he was one of my biggest supporters. Um, and I would go, I had uh, lunch with him at least once a year till the day that he died. And his uh, wife asked me to speak at his funeral. And I, I, uh, I miss him very much. He was he was a he was a very unique individual. He was I don't know if we have time for all these stories. Yeah, I got more. I got it's my it's your time. I'm worried about. I got plenty. <laughs> you know, I I always tell people there. Jim his name was Jim Keen, and uh, he was police chief in Santa Monica for quite some time. And he was very old school. He was from the Korean War era. And um, I, I remember going. I, I finally I was his adjutant, and I talked him into going down to speak to Nightwatch roll call. Now you have to understand this is back in the eighty early eighties, when you never saw the chief of police. They were some godlike figure that existed <laughs> right. somewhere else. And I got him to come down to um, uh, to uh, roll call and speak to the troops, and and he did. And then he said, "Were there any questions?" And somebody asked him a question about. Um, we went through the phase where shotguns were horizontal instead of vertical. And somebody said, you know, it's really hard to get them out. Can we go back to shot? And he said, um, he looks at the person. He says, you know, I said, the phone company is hiring. He said, if you don't like how we do things around here, you could go to work for them. And not surprisingly, there were no more questions at, <laughs> at that meeting. And and I always tell this story as an example of, of a failed moral opportunity that on my part. Because as we were walking out the door, he said to me, that went well, don't you think? And I did not tell him the truth at that point. I, I, I was shocked. But what I, as I thought about it later, I realized something. And that is... Much like Covey's thing about seek first to understand before you ask to be understood. 
Jim Keene came from an era where a leader's job was to ensure absolute compliance. And so from his perspective, squashing what might be the beginning of dissent was an was a success. The meeting did go well because he did squash that dissent. I was from a different generation that thought that you were supposed to interact with people and 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 be be part of that and and I I wouldn't have done what Jim Keen did at that meeting. But it took me a while, but I got to realize that, that from Jim Keen's perspective he did the right thing. And I think too often in this business, particularly internally, when we talk about internal politics, it is it is too easy to ascribe negative negative motives to people when in point of fact they're usually just coming from the best place that they know that they know how. So that brings up an interesting question about paradigms throughout generations and yours was different than your old chiefs. What is different about the newer leaders, the, 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 the first time sergeants, the younger sergeants versus yours? What do you see the difference? I think, well, on the, on the plus side, I think, I think the sergeants of today are, are smarter. They're more technologically savvy uh, they're more psychologically savvy. They're more. They're open to a uh, a variety of solutions. Um, my my. I mentioned Cubby Seven Habits. Um, my absolute favorite leadership book, most influential leadership book, is called The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership by Stephen Sample. And in it, and, and he's not talking about police work, but it's true. He says we fall into the binary trap. He said, we reduce things to two choices almost instantly. And in policing, that's especially true. And I think in my era, sergeants were very action-oriented. They were very, we're going to move forward. We're going to resolve this problem. We're either going to arrest or not arrest. We're going to use force or not use force. But whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it right now and get this over with. I think today's sergeants are much more attuned to the need to slow things down, to back up, to say, okay, what are our options here? Uh, And maybe doing nothing is an option which in my era of being a sergeant, doing nothing was never an option. You always had to do something. Um, and and so, you know, that's changed. On the negative side, I think today's sergeants are sometimes afraid to lead. They're, they're, they're afraid of hurting feelings. They're afraid that people won't like them. Um, and I, you know, besides my policing career, I spent 28 years in the military. I spent, I had three years active duty. I had 25 years in the reserves with two active duty deployments. Uh, I, I remember going from being a, a chief of police to an E5 boat driver with the Coast Guard. Um, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm, I am, am dialed into um, this whole generational, this whole generational uh, process. Uh, and, and about, there are times when, if we're at a SWAT call, if we're in the middle of a gunfight, if we're doing something, uh, we're not going to have a committee meeting. And I don't really care whether I've hurt your feelings or not. I want you to go from point A to point B. I want you to stand at point B till I tell you to move. And and conversely, if somebody tells me to go stand on point B, I'm going to go do that until I'm told to move. Mm-hmm. The, the thing to remember for leaders, I think, in our business is that 95% of the time we're not in that mode. We're in another mode. Uh, and it's important to, to know that. And that other mode being more open to soliciting feedback and Correct. ideas. Correct. So how do you, how do you stay, how does uh, a younger guy stay self-aware? What are the recommendations you can give? 
God, I don't know. <laughs> I stumped I, you. I don't know. Um, I think I, one of the one of the things that I came up with a long time ago was was how to respond to criticism, and because nobody likes to be criticized, nobody likes to be told um, that something they're doing is not you know, is not the best or whatever. Sure. No one likes it. Um, And I came up with the idea that there are really two questions that you should ask yourself. And I think it promotes self-awareness. So I try to do it. And if someone criticizes you or offers you a suggestion or whatever, the, the first question is, is what they're saying true? And you, I think, have an obligation to at least stop and and review this and look at yourself and look at what's going on and, and, and really assess, is this true? And if what you come to is that, no, it's, it's not, then the second question is, then why does this person believe that? Or why is this information out there? Is there something that I'm doing? Is there some, is there some false narrative going on? Is something going on? But in, in either case, you have, um, you have analyzed the problem and you've come to the conclusion that it's no. It's equally important to remember that you may analyze the problem and come to the conclusion that yes, what the person's saying is true. In which case, the second question is, do I care enough to change? Because there are aspects of my personality and how I choose to do things that may not be the best, that people may not um, appreciate or approve of, but I'm going to do it that way because it works for me. Um, and uh, I'll, and that's okay mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm aware. I'm, I'm aware that this is an issue and I'm a, I've, I've looked at the problem. I've, done, I've, I've been respectful to the person that took the time to say this is, this is an issue. I've looked at it, and now I've, I've come to my own conclusion about how I'm going to respond to it. And I think if you do that on a fairly regular basis, if you don't dismiss any suggestion or criticism, oh, that's BS, you know, we're not going to do that, then I think, um, then I think you've taken a giant step in the direction of self-awareness. I think that's great advice. So law enforcement the last couple of years have gone through quite the gauntlet of challenges, to say the least, and we have a new generation. A lot of the listeners uh, of the show email me all the time asking about asking for tips or ideas or uh, advice on how to get into law enforcement. Um, what are the things that you that you can um, suggest to this new generation of people who want to come into law enforcement? What are the things that you want them to know when someone is just starting out at the beginning of their, what might be 40-year career? I want you to know that if, I will tell you that if I was 45 years younger, but I knew everything that was going to happen to me in the next 45 years, I would do this again in a heartbeat. This business in some ways is changed radically since I came into it. And in some ways it hasn't changed at all. The vagaries of human nature are pretty much what they've always been. Um, The things that are different today than when I came in are the level of public skepticism, uh, the scrutiny under which today's officers operate, which is in my opinion, far more difficult than what I went through. Um, 
But I would go back to, I think, one of the first questions that you asked me, which is, you know, why I do this. You come into this job and you get to make a difference. Your what the quote you said that was on somebody's refrigerator about it's a career, not a crusade is valid. I think if you come in believing that you are going to perpetually operate, you know, occupy the moral high ground and that everybody is going to be appreciative of what you do and all that, you really should consider a career in the fire service because <laughs> everyone loves them. And and actually, I'm not trying to be facetious now no you're absolutely right because and everyone loves them in part because they only come when people ask them to right you know they don't interfere with people's lives right and and they they every every solution that they have people understand and accept correct yeah uh there's no threat the fireman's going to take away your liberty or they, your right. absolutely yeah. or 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 stop you when you don't want to be stopped or right. or what or intervene in something that you don't want them to intervene in so that that part is there, uh, and this is a this is a worthwhile career. But you should decide that you're you're up for it. If you, um, not everyone can do it, and I don't I don't say that in a negative way, uh, because there are psychological costs to this business. Uh, uh, but I think it is worthwhile, and you do get to make a difference. So I want to touch on that real quick. The psychological costs. Where do you think? How far off? do you think it is where the mental health is becomes on par with the physical health? We get, we get a lot of promotion of physical health and physical fitness. And that concept is very easy for an officer to understand about being a tactical athlete, being in shape and command presence and making sure that you don't have, you're not one of the 50% of cops who have a heart attack before 45. How far are we away from getting that same acknowledgement of mental health? I think quite a ways. I, I think I think we're getting better. The dirty little secret in our business is that for every officer or deputy who is killed by a criminal in this country, somewhere between five and seven officers will kill themselves. Um, and we don't we don't really want to look at that. I will tell you that um, the single most traumatic thing for me as a police chief. Uh, was uh, was the suicide of one of my officers. Um, I think we we do we don't do a great job of. My former father-in-law was a an English professor, and it used to annoy the heck out of me because every five years he got a sabbatical. He got a he got a semester off with pay. Now theoretically, it was to go off and do research and and do something, but I don't know whether he ever did or not. <laughs> Um, and you could actually take another semester at half pay. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we have that, but, but there was a recognition that, that in that business, you needed to be able to take a break and go do something else. Um, you know, I, I feel very fortunate in some ways. I've, I've gotten breaks in my career that I didn't even plan for, um, and, you know, in 1991, I got called to active duty and sent to Saudi Arabia. I got a nine-month break <laughs> from police work. In 2003, I was on active duty for 10 months. I got a break. Uh, in 2008, I was the acting city manager for nearly a year. So I got these breaks in the in the business. Um, I think it was good for my mental health because it was just a different perspective. It wasn't any less work. It wasn't any less stress, but it was just a different you know, a different treadmill. I think we need to find a way to do that. 
Uh, I, having said that, I do think that we we are in danger of, much like I said, I don't like formal mentoring programs. We have, in some ways, created this environment where we assume that any bad thing is going to result in um, you know, some kind of uh, horrible, stressful, traumatic situation to the individual. And that's not always true. Yeah. Um, I think, for example, when officers are involved in, in deadly force incidents, um, you you should, I believe, departments should mandate that anybody that was associated with that incident, uh, or I, I said shooting, but it could be anything that's super traumatic, everybody should have to go for counseling. Now, you say that knowing that 80% of the people who are going to go to counseling don't need to be there. Because the truth is they have their own adaptive skills. They have their own ability to figure it out. Um, but 20% of them do need to go. Uh, and I, um, the in the aftermath of my officer's suicide, um, we, we drilled into, I actually hired a, a psychologist who came in and did a forensic autopsy on, on the last uh, several months of the officer's life. And... And we realized that the the officer had been dropping breadcrumbs all over the place about what it was he intended to do, the stress that he was in, the crisis that he was in, but it um, uh, nobody picked it up because it wasn't there wasn't any one thing that was big enough. So we implemented a whole series of changes, including things like group counseling, uh, you know, mandating uh, a wide net, creating a peer counseling support system, creating four or five alternative ways for people of officers to get help. And and when I left the department in 2009, the psychologist um, told me that they believed that at least four additional suicides had been prevented. Oh wow! Because of those, because of those uh, programs, and those are for people that I know nothing about as the mm-hmm. chief of police, and neither did anybody else in the building because of the way we structured it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, close real quick with a question I like to ask people who I know uh, read, and you've already mentioned two, but uh, favorite books, things you would recommend. I would, I would actually sort of. Co- I mean, I mentioned the two books that influenced me as a leader, but I. I read continuously, and I and I don't read um, just about police work. Uh, police work fits into a broader context. Um, so, uh, for example, I just finished a book called Prisoners of Geography, which was a description of of the um, uh, uh, sort of eight sort of broad continental areas. And what was significant about them from the standpoint of geopolitics and world dynamics and all this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, that has nothing to do with police work, but it's yeah. interesting. Um, uh, I read, I've read three uh, fiction books by an author named Richard Russo. It had nothing to do with, with policing in particular, but I find him his insights into human character fascinating. So I, would, I never say, oh, this is my favorite book, other than for a particular topic. But I would say that, that you... It's absolutely imperative that you that you continually read. I think I think being a lifelong learner. You asked earlier about self awareness, and I think part of that is is being making a commitment to be a lifelong learner. Absolutely, it's 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 incumbent on ourselves just to maintain our own uh, well again self awareness, but also challenge ourselves with new ideas and see a different perspective. Right? It's easy for us. Uh, to come to work and be surrounded in that echo chamber of the cop perspective, and one of the best ways out of that is reading. And that's where that's where you 
that reading and that outside interest and all those things, that's the WD-40 for that daily drop of corrosion. So, Well, there it is. Sir, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Garrett. All right. Thanks for listening to The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I read each of them, and it really helps spread the word of the show. If you heard something today you know a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. You grab their phone out of their hand and subscri- hit subscribe on your uh, podcast app, or you can uh, go to thesquadroom.net and email this episode directly to them. To keep up to date, you can text the Squad Room all one word, to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. And, of course, again, Instagram and Twitter is at the Squad Room or on Facebook. And reminder, reminder, please join the Facebook group. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, if you have a question for me, you want to start a conversation, you uh, need some advice. Uh, I, I don't always give the best advice, but I can always certainly try. My uh, email is Garrett, two R's, two T's, Garrett at the Squad Room.net. Lastly, I want to tell you this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles in inventory, Audible has hundreds of audiobooks that apply to us. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to continue your education. To get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room to sign up. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.